And second of all, I'd like to thank a great hostess. I've had a ball this weekend. Uh, and I'd like to thank you guys for asking me to come down to share my story. Geneva is quite unique. We had this, we had this wonderful lunch and we just got to sharing and talking and Ruth was there and some of you stood me up. Where's the, two, where's the women that stood me up? Are they here? <laughs> we won't ask you to stand this time, but we did wait. <laughs> but I know today God puts everybody where they need to be and it's just a joke. I just want you to know I know you stood me up. And then the one thing I can say about, I want to say, I say Missouri. Y'all say Missouri. So, tomato, tomato. Okay. Gotcha. I would say the, I would say the state of M, but that could also mean Mississippi since I'm from Mississippi. So I'm going to be real nice and I'm just going to say thank you, thank you, thank you. And there's a, a few special ladies in this room that I had dinner with last night. And before I end, I'm going to put this on. <laughs> I told them getting even was fun. <laughs> but at any rate, my name is Geneva Brown. Hi, I am a very, very grateful member of Al-Anon. I have gone through the service route. And I ended up, my service, when I end up, will tell you that I was a delegate for Illinois. Panel 34, for which I'm very grateful for the state of Illinois. And in my quest as delegate, I met a bunch of delegates from down here. And Missouri's got this thing from John Papa. <laughs> Bless his heart, I understand he's not feeling well. was the first delegate from Missouri I met. And just for the record, I want to tell you how John walked up and, and um, greeted me. He came up to me and he said, you're Geneva from Illinois, and I said, he said, where's all the black people? <laughs> and I said, John, I don't know. I mean, I'm black, but I can't tell you. <laughs> and after that, that was the bond between John and I that he was an outgoing delegate, but he was real helpful. And I want you guys to know you, you've had some hell of a delegates from Missouri. And I Now, I'm going to try to make this short because there's a special delegate out there I'm going to say something about at the very end. Um, who, we were panel members together. But you brought me down here to tell you how it was, how it is, and how I'd like it to be. <laughs> My childhood was eventful. I am the last of ten. Last of ten children. I'm not the baby. I just happen to be the last. You see, I married the last of seven, of which he is the baby. <laughs> now, that's going to make a difference to you when I tell you this story. <laughs> I qualify for an adult child of an alcoholic. My dad is, was, may he rest in peace, an alcoholic. And as far back as I can remember, my dad was an alcoholic. But at that time... I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi. All you know is that uh, it had drinks. That was it. But at the age of 14, my dad walked inside one Friday afternoon and said, 
I'm not working for anybody. He quit a job after 20 years and decided I was only 14 years old that he was not working for anybody. And that's what he did. Now that's kind of devastating. He was a, my dad was not a young man when he made that decision. But he wasn't old enough to retire either. He just chose not to work anymore. And what he did was he got a new job, a new career. And that was to get drunk. And when I tell people my dad got drunk three times a day, a lot of people think it's impossible. But it's not. My dad is an early, was an early riser. And I say he is because I recently lost him. So if I say he is and was, my dad is deceased today. But I still talk about him sometime in the present sense because thanks to Alanon, I still love, I love my dad after I thought I hated him for a lot of years. But Alanon taught me I love that man. I didn't like the disease that he had, but I love the man. And thank you, God, I was able to separate the two. And I was able to say to him before he died that I love my dad. And I told him, Daddy, I love you. So, to help you get some idea of what happened, my mom, who was a stay-at-home person, ended up having to find ways to support her children because her husband chose not to work. My mom, who stood 4'9", and weighed roughly about 300 pounds, was probably the meanest woman in the world. Now, I've had some disagreements with other people about this, but I'm sure of it. Mine was it. <laughs> that woman could cure the common cold. And it was simply because she scared the hell out of it. I'm sorry. <laughs> and it, with all this power that she had, my request for her was to make my daddy stop drinking. Now, I figured if you can cure a cold, you certainly could stop this man from drinking. And it was real devastating because I lived in a small community. And kids teased other kids like we do, like they do today. They teased me because I was old drunk Ernest Coleman's daughter. And that hurt. But being a pre-candidate for Alateen and Al-Anon, I learned how to deal with that. I became a bully. <laughs> I had two choices. I'd either outlast them and make them go away, or I would attack, and they would definitely go away. <laughs> but, you know, i got to tell you, be careful what you do to children. Be careful what, what the, this alcoholism is doing to a child. Because they could grow up like me, which is not good. <laughs> Children don't always say what they feel. I was vocal. This is why I wear parcels today, for being vocal. I always, my mom, I tease my mom as I got older that she's the reason I, woke, I have to wear parcels because she had a mean backhand and I always caught it in the lip. So she loosened them. Because I was vocal. But today I see teens that are not vocal. They keep it on the inside. 
or they react in other ways. So please, 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 please be careful what you do to a child today. If there's active drinking in that home, talk to that child. Do something. Please do not allow them to keep that inside. It hurts. And I'm a witness that it hurts. Okay, now that I had that sermon, I'll move on. <laughs> After my mom went to, went to work and my brothers and sisters who I told you I'm the last, not the baby, I'm just the last, they chipped in with the household expenses and stuff like that because my dad was my dad today. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on him. But the other side of this point, I want to tell you about this mom, my mom. My mom is what they call the matriarch of the family. She ruled the roost. Whatever she said, happened. Whatever she did was okay. So therefore, all of her children, and you know how southern people are, the ones that were married, every morning you stopped by to see how mama was doing. And she still believed in cooking these huge breakfasts for her children to stop by on their way to work. The lady has breakfast ready at 5.30 in the morning. The biscuits, the grits, the bacon, the eggs, the sausage for her children up until the day she died because everybody stopped by mom. Therefore, she kept enough control of her children. And my husband used to say this, that none of my mom's children moved away from her. She could actually walk on a good day to any one of her children's houses, which was not far. So he teased me that I wouldn't let my kids go away because my mom didn't let us go away. I am the last of ten, and I'm the first to leave my mom when I moved to Chicago. Which you... I'll tell you she sent me, but it wasn't the way you think. <laughs> but anyway, I had a mouth problem. I still got it. Like it or not, if it, as they say, if it comes up, it comes out. I just today pray to God, you know, give me the right words when you're coming out. <laughs> because I, I do, I, I say what I feel. And Al-Anon has taught me it's okay. It's not what I say, it's the way I say it, which makes a difference today. But I talked to her about my dad's drinking, and she knew that it hurt. But she had a saying that said, your father is your father, and you have to obey your father. Now, that was the strangest thing to me. Why do we have to obey alcoholics? I couldn't understand that. But that's that southern thing. And I got in a lot of trouble because... When she wasn't around, if the alcoholic said sit down, I automatically stood up. If he told me not to go somewhere, I automatically went because I was just a rebel. I was a defiant little hard-headed kid who enjoyed every minute of it. You paid the consequences when she got back. But right then, just because he was an alcoholic, I didn't, I didn't like my dad. If you had asked me when I was 14, 15, 16, I told you I hated my dad. So what I did is I wanted to get out of that house because my mom wouldn't make him stop drinking and I thought she could. And he was, the drinking was just progressing and you're looking at the other kids who parents get up, the, the dad get up and take his kids to Sunday school on Sunday morning and mine would be laying there drunk. He would insist that you go but he wouldn't take you. Now isn't that awkward? He would insist that we go to Sunday school but he never would take us like the neighbor next door. 
get up, get dressed, and take the kids to Sunday school and church. And I didn't understand that, and I didn't like it. When he died on his obituary, they said that my dad was the deacon of a church. And I couldn't understand it because I never had known him to go. But I guess in the day, he was a deacon of the church. But that alcohol, that disease of alcoholism, took him away from the church. The only thing I can tell you is that he made sure his children went. He just didn't go. But I wanted out of that household badly. And my mom had this rule, you know, girls, girls be in by 11 o'clock at night, which, you know, in Mississippi, even at that time, things had changed. You're going to be in at 12 regardless. But I stayed in a lot of trouble, and I just wanted out of that house. And my way of getting out of that house was, there was a young man that moved across the street from me. And he's sitting back there in that room right now. <laughs> and when I saw him, when his parents moved into this house across the street, you know how that spiritual awakening. <laughs> he was fine. Mm, was he fine? So... After the normal, when I first saw him, you know, I, you have to pretend you can't stand them, you know, and get their attention. And I went through all of that. But as it would have it, after a while, the one thing he did that was the only thing that really got me was he drank. And I just, I fell in love and I thought the love of a good woman will make him stop drinking. <laughs> So after we dated for a while and got it together, and honesty is what I do today, I told him we were getting married, and he said yes. <laughs> he never asked me, would you marry me? Well, I don't know, it was something, I guess, about this attitude. I said we're getting married, and he said all right. So on August the 14th, 1966, Bob and I got married Southern style, on the front porch with the magnolias and the family out there. But again, remember I told you that he drank. And that night after a gorgeous wedding, we went out at the reception and he got drunk. And the next morning he woke up and he looked over at me and he said, what are you doing in my bed? <laughs> Folks, that didn't tell me nothing. I kind of gently nudged him and said, well, we got married yesterday. He didn't remember. But that didn't tell me nothing because I'm in love. So after that, and it was okay that I was there, we didn't have a honeymoon right then. So we both worked at the same place. So we went to work that Monday, and everything was fine that Monday until Friday. When Friday came... It's a ritual where the men get off work, they come in, they get debt, and they go to a hole in the wall. They get all dressed up to go to this hole in the wall, and that's what he did. With the rest, half of Jackson is at this hole in the wall, all dressed up. He got drunk, and he came home, and I was upset. Because his intent was not to go out, get drunk, and stay out. It was to go out, have some drinks with the boys, and come on back home to his good wife, this loving wife. And he got 
drunk he came. When, they, when he did get home, I was upset. He said he wasn't going to do it anymore that morning. And that evening, Saturday evening, after they washed the car and mow their grass, they get decked again to go back to this hole in the wall. And when he came back, he was drunk. He was drunk. I was mad. So I did tell you I moved. I lived across the street from him, right? Well, I packed up my suitcase and I moved back across the street. <laughs> and when he got sober that Sunday morning, he came over and with those little puppy dog eyes and that smile, and he said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it again. I was just still celebrating our wedding. <laughs> I bought that. And I took that blue suitcase back across the street, and we started a new week. Well, everything went well until that Friday afternoon. And i got to tell you something else in Mississippi. I don't know about Missouri, but men start drinking Friday afternoon, and they stop Sunday at 12. So it was a ritual. They started at Sunday at 12. They were done for the day to get ready for Monday. I could never understand that. But this ended, and in two weeks later, I had that suitcase back across the street. <laughs> but this time, my mom said something to me that was totally, I had never heard this before. She said, listen to me. That boy works five days a week, and he has a right to get drunk on weekends if he wants to. So she didn't have to send me across the street. I went back. Because <laughs> this ain't what I want to hear. And I see now that you're not going to help me with this. So I went on this quest of my own to stop him from drinking. And in Mississippi, it was fairly easy because you have really nothing to do. And the devil can give you all these ideas. And I had two. I had a, a halo and, and a pitchfork. But the... <laughs> On each one of my shoulders, because I can be as sweet as pie, they tell me, but I can also be, mm. But this one with the pitchfork had better ideas. <laughs> you know, on Sunday, this one would work. You know, just pray about it and da-da-da-da. But this one would say, okay, now get even. Get him. And that's what I did. And I can remember, to show you how bad his drinking was, my husband, when he drank, he's 5'5", five, five, y'all. Best case. He'll say 5'6", but I'll tell you best case is 5'5". Five, five. <laughs> when he started drinking that booze, that stuff told him he was at least 6'6", six, six and weighed 800 pounds. And I shared this with you because he would go in a bar and there was a thing that that booze did. It allowed him to look around the room and pick the biggest guy in the bar. And that's who he'd want to pick a fight with. But I'm going to tell you, God takes care of babies and alcoholics. Because in this quest with these big guys that he fought, he picked, fight, he picked fights with and fought, he won. So I know God takes care of babies and alcoholics. Because some of them folks was pretty tough. But that little piece of leather over there, was tough because he did when he fight. I mean, he'd come home, he would go home, he would leave out of his house well-dressed and come back and his shirt was being shreds where people had cut at him with razors or knives and he'd come, in back, he'd come back home looking like Raggedy Ann. 
and because he was notorious for carrying guns. Pistol packing little mini man. <laughs> he got into a lot of trouble. Of which, being the baby of his family, they bailed him out. Because he was the baby. All he had to do was say, this is what has happened. And the family automatically figured out how much will it cost because that's what we're going to do. Because that's our baby. Just before we left Mississippi, it was a thing where it was a bunch of families. And they were very large families. And I was one of the four large families. So the family heads decided that we could not fight. If it was a problem, the heads had to meet because of it, we were large, very large. And this, it, it sounds crazy, but I can understand today why. He married into our family. And what would he want to do? He would uh, want to attack one of the men in the other large family. And, you know, at this point, they're all grown now and nobody's taking anything. And what he did was he had fought this man and he told him, if you see my footprints going one way, turn around and go back the other. That's how ugly it was. And this particular night, the, the, the man was standing there trying to explain to me that he just wanted to make peace with Bob. He didn't want to fight Bob. He didn't want to, they didn't want to get into this. And Bob was in the bathroom and when he comes out, what does he see? He sees this guy talking to me and all of a sudden there's a fight. What he didn't realize is before we had left, his mom and I had taken his pistols out of the car. This was a going out night. So we took the pistols out. When he went to the car to get his pistol, the guy walked up to him, had his drawn, shot, and the firing pin jumped out the back. Now you tell me God don't take care of babies and alcoholics. It's frightening. Bob hit the guy with the door, went home to get his, to get his pistols. By the time he got there, his, he couldn't get his car out, so he had somebody else's. By the time he got there, we got in the car, we got home. And this is the fight, of, this is the kind of fight we had to do. He couldn't get find the pistol, so he took a shotgun. He would put the shotgun on one side, I'd have to get it out. He'd come take it from me, push me down, put it back in, his mom would take it out. He'd take it from her, and this went on until he got tired. Okay? So you see, life like this, and it was other instances like this that happened in Mississippi. We couldn't go on like this. Now, Bob and I are fighting regularly because I got this thing where you ain't going out and get drunk. But I even remember trying to teach him how to drink. Okay? I remember saying to him, and I'm going to move on after I tell you this, I'll show you how to drink so that you don't get drunk. Okay? When I think you've had enough to drink, I'm going to nicely hold up this finger. That means you've had enough, right? Well, you know what? The first time I held it up, it worked. He stopped. He didn't order any more to drink. I got this licked. I got this stuff licked. Well, the second time, on the second occasion I held it up, I think he missed it. So I went a little higher. He stopped. So, I mean, he missed it the first time, you know. The third occasion, I held it up. I held it up. I held it up. And it's me, so what the hell are you holding your finger up for? 
and he continued right on the drink. So I knew that didn't work. And then, you know, I, I got to tell you, I tried a lot of things in Mississippi. But the one thing that kind of helped was he had a brother that lived in, Min in Minnesota. And his brother's wife, I thought, stopped his brother from drinking. So when it was time for that, what you got, what I learned today, a geographical change, and he was going to move to Minneapolis because Mississippi was just not the place for him. It was trouble for him. He stayed in trouble all the time. So when he said that after the last bout with the law, which he had a lot of them, that he was going to move to Minneapolis, I thought, great. Now what will happen is, we'll, we, by now, oh, by now, we have two gorgeous little girls. By now, he moved there. His sister's going to show me how to stop him from drinking like she stopped her husband from drinking. So I'm all for this. Helped him pack and everything, put him on a train. And in his story, he'll tell you he got on the train with a gallon of corn liquor, but I'm not going there with you. I'll let him tell you that one day when you hear his story. Somehow, when he got to Chicago, his, it was a layover, and his sisters, he had two sisters here, got him off the train and convinced him that Minnesota wasn't the place for him to be. When I got a call that said, you now live in Chicago, Illinois, I almost fainted. I was like, no, I'm not moving to Chicago. Do you know what people in Mississippi think about people in Chicago? It ain't nice. <laughs> but I knew I wasn't going to move, and I said, no. I had the two kids. I was willing to go to Minnesota, and I said, no, I'm not moving to Chicago. And, you know, he, would, he said, I've been here for a month. I've got this job with Admiral. I, you know, getting this apartment, and I said, no. Now, remember that little lady I told you, she who must be obeyed. <laughs> She came to me and she said, your husband's in Chicago and that's where you should be. A wife, should, a wife and kids should be with their husbands and you will be on a train Saturday morning to Chicago. So you know where I was Saturday morning? On a train on my way to Chicago. My husband had told me he didn't drink. He had stopped drinking and, you know, he was working, had this job, this apartment and everything was fine. When he met us at the train station, he was drunk. He told me he got drunk because he was only celebrating that, the fact that his family was coming to Chicago. When he picked us up and we got home to 23 South St. Louis, and if everybody knows, it's on the west side of Chicago, it's at St. Louis and Monroe. There were some people standing on that corner with bags and stuff. And when we got out of that car, they said, hi, Bob. See, folks, that didn't tell me nothing. <laughs> so, at that point, I went on this, he, I went to work, I had a transfer to this, to Chicago, to this company, God really took care of us. So I went to work that Monday morning, and that weekend, I had to work weekends. It turns out, I got, he got drunk, and my sister-in-law called me and worked and said that my three-year-old baby daughter had cursed her out. And my first question is, where was her dad? But I had to get off work. I got home. He was drunk. Passed out, and my kids were in that house. So I went on this quest. Now I'm angry. So I think if you give an alcoholic a list of things to do, they don't have time to get drunk. So I made him a list. Okay, now I have turned into she who must be obeyed. Do everything on this list. And by that time, I should be home, right? Well, as it turned out, one of the things on his list was cooking, dinner. Well, he did put, start the dinner. 
He just got drunk and forgot it was cooking because I got a call from the fire department to come home. My apartment was on fire. And my kids was in that place, was in that apartment. And by the time I got home and they had put the fire out, now I'm angry. I'm angry, I'm bitter, and I just want out of this. So I packed my clothes and I moved back, took a train back to Mississippi. By the time I got to Mississippi, he was there. He beat the train there. And I've got this little lady standing there saying, that's your husband. You should be with your husband and he should raise his children. All that boy does is get drunk. So you know what happened? I got off the train, went to her house, got back in the car and drove that long 10 hours back to Chicago. And that's when I thought nobody can help me. I'm a Southern Baptist and I prayed, God help me. Help me, help me, help me. It, it, nobody could understand what I was saying. I tried talking to my sister. They, they didn't understand. Well, you know, he's a good, that boy's a good boy. He works five days a week. And you want to say, who cares? I'm a raving maniac here. The man is driving me crazy. I'm getting stomach aches. I'm getting back aches. And I'm severe. And I went to the doctor. And all he did was give me Valiums, which I didn't take because they make you feel woozy. It was like you couldn't feel your feet. So I knew I didn't want that. And every time I go back, he just changed the colors. Hell, I was rainbow bright for the longest time. <laughs> so that wasn't the answer. I tried to explain to the doctor that Bob about Bob's drinking, and you know what he said to Bob. Now, you only need to have one or two martinis. Today, I still keep literature in that doctor's office. <laughs> I went on this, now I'm on this quest to stop my husband from drinking. And again, I start praying to God, God, help me. Nobody understands, please help me. And God just wouldn't help me because every day I'd wake up thinking, he, you know, you've done what I told you to do. He won't be drinking. He'd come home drunk. That disease progressed. When he used to stop Sunday at 12, he stopped on Sunday evening. Then he started not stopping. So he drank. He's a truck driver, and you know how you guys wear your boots. So he kept a bottle in his boot. He drank every day. And every day the man was, this, this alcoholism was driving me crazy. I'm focused on him. I've got these two girls out here in Never Never Land, which I think because you can buy them all the name brand clothes and all this kind of stuff. They should be okay and be grateful, but now they're acting out at school. And me not understanding, saying, well, I'm giving you everything you want, da-da-da-da. Everything but that attention and love that I should have been giving them because I was focused on that alcoholic. So when they would act out at school, I'd send them on this guilt trip about, I'm working, you got a roof over your head, da-da-da-da-da-da making a bad situation worse, which is why I'm telling you. Been there, done that. That is not the way to do it today. But the kids are acting out. God's not doing it. Every day I would say, okay, God, here's what I want you to do. He never did anything I told him to do. So I did what I do best. I don't want any part of you. You won't do what I tell you to do. I don't want to go to church anymore. I'm not doing anything like that. I'll do it myself. Since you can't handle the situation, I can. 
And I remember when I when I made that final decision is because he called gasoline. And he and some of his buddies were talking about how they came down a mountain in Montana on a sheet of ice and they couldn't stop until they got to Iowa. And I told God, I said, see, now that was your chance. <laughs> you didn't do what I told you to do. Perfect opportunity. Now I'll do it myself. And I remember plotting on how to do this. Okay? I was just sick enough to build a scenario with his family about how when he's in town, he don't come home for a couple of days and I don't know where he is. Now, j just so you know, it was a flat-out lie, because if he was in Chicago, he came home, whatever time, but the one thing he was going to do was come home. I built this up quite well. I remember in the snow, 69, blizzard in Chicago. The one thing they do is, when they get drunk, they want to pass out in our living rooms. You know those prized possessions we hold in our living room, where only company can sit? <laughs> I know today that was so crazy, but, you know, you just kept that perfect. Nobody in the family could sit in there. The kids couldn't sit in there, the husband. It was only for company, and y'all know what I'm talking about. As luck would have it, that's the one place you want to come pass out. And that little man I told you about with that fork over here, he told me, when he, I saw him passed out there, he said, all dogs belong outside. <laughs> So what I did was, there was a mound of snow in the back from having the shovel. I remember having to pull him in my living room, if you ever come to my house, it's kind of straight like that. I remember pulling him through the living room, the dining room, the kitchen, by the feet, opening that back door, and actually holding his feet so his head could hit every step. <laughs> As I dragged him out there and, and threw him in that snow. I came back inside and said, oh, Lord, let it snow. Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. It took me 45 minutes to pull that man out of there. But what I got to tell you is he stayed out there for like two hours or so. He comes inside. He gets up. He comes inside. He gets in the shower, takes a bath, goes to bed, right? He wake up the next morning. He's fine. I wake up the next morning. I damn near got pneumonia. <laughs> Head is stuffed, achy, cold. God takes care of babies and alcoholics. And then I went on the ultimate kick of killing him. And I knew I was going to kill him. I knew I was going to kill my husband. I just didn't know how. I knew I was going to do it. No doubt about it. In my heart, my soul, my, all of me knew I was going to kill him. And then God had one more chance at him. Okay? Uh, in Chicago, when you come off the Dan Ryan onto the Eisenhower, there's a curve. And I knew I planned this funeral already. White limousine, black limousine, and I had also picked out this black hat at a store downtown on State Street. And I bought that hat, by the way. <laughs> For his funeral, I bought this hat. This huge black hat with the veil. And I was going to matched this with this black outfit and I was going to be the, the, the jazziest widow on the west side of Chicago when I went to his funeral. I didn't buy the outfit, but I bought that hat. Well, as it turned out, I got, 
And I was, oh, I got to tell you how I used to practice in the mirror crying because he was dead. <laughs> I mean, you had to have the right tears, you had to have the right, so I would practice on how I was going to be crying with my hat on, you know. So, as it turned out, God had another chance. When he got ready to come off to Dan Ryan, he never made it. He never made it to the Eisenhower. He went off and he was loaded and that gas, yeah, this gasoline went down and crushed him. And when dispatch called and said they were sending somebody to get me, I started my tears. I started, you know, I was practicing, right? So I'm standing there practicing now. Oh, and I'm just so happy. But these tears. <laughs> you know, and, and typically they send the two in there, you know, the two guys in there to get you and they explain that there's been a serious accident and they needed me to come. They, so they took me in their car to the scene of the accident because the fire department was there hosing down this gasoline. And they're trying to cut him out this truck and there's no human, it's not even possible that the man is not dead. That truck looked like an accordion. And I remember I was standing there crying. Oh, I was practicing. Oh, I'm just, I was tickle pink. <laughs> I was tickle pink because in his insurance policy was a word I learned, double indemnity. <laughs> and I'm qualified. So I'm, I'm sitting there with these tears and they're trying to comfort me. And thank you. In my head it's like, thank you, thank you, thank you. I don't know if they thought I was just so upset I was shaking, but I was having a ball. <laughs> it turned out they made one more cut in that truck. And when they cut and did a pull, he jumped out. <laughs> now I'm really crying. Again. And I didn't hesitate to tell him when I got by myself, you did it again. You did you, you blew it. Just don't talk to me and I won't talk to you. You don't do nothing I tell you to do. Can't you follow instruction? Ugh. Well made it through that one. And by the way, I kept that black hat for a lot of years after I was in Alanon. before I destroyed that hat. And then, I got to tell you about, we fought physical fights. We had a lot of physical fights. And we would have to call the police, and he would call the police on me, and I'd call them on him. It was just a vicious cycle of insanity going. And then I thought, I'm going to kill him. Those Valiums that I told you about. Somebody told me if, you, if they... You put them in beer and they'll foam up their finger, they'll knock them out. I knew about that part, had that part, but I didn't know, I didn't have any other plans past that. And then, as a sideline, my husband does interior decorating. And I remember one day he walked in and he had this brand new, orange and black, black and decker saw. Do you know what a sick mind can do with a saw like that? You see, when he went into your homes, he had this huge drop cloth thing that he spread it all over your house. And then in some areas, he had these rolls of plastic where he put plastic down. Got it. 
This, this, this little pitchfork told me, put the Valiums in the beer, knock him out. Put him on that board, that sawhorse thing with that board on it. Put that plastic down, cut off a head, an arm, a leg, half the torso, down the chest, I had it. Put him in garbage bags and put him all over Illinois. <laughs> they were never going to put Humpty Dumpty together again. In my first quest, see, you guys didn't tell me that you have to put the Valiums in and then pour a little beer in until they dissolve. Because the first time I did it, I put the beer in the Valiums and stuff went everywhere and you know you weren't going to drink that. So I had to wait. Can't do it that day because I done screwed up because you didn't tell me how to do it. But the second time I did this just right. And I know today what happened. I had gotten him in the basement. I had the car filled with gas, I had the garbage bags, I had the plastic down, I had everything when my doorbell rang. And the friends that rang the doorbell that day are still friends of ours now. That when we talk about this and they say they don't know why they stopped by my house. Well, I didn't know why they stopped by either because it was a ritual with me. Don't come to my house unless you call first. But today we, I know that God sent them by there because I was tired. So I didn't get to do it that day and a few weeks after that and I'm still plotting it because I know I have to kill him no doubt about it a few days after that he came home and he got in my bed and he laid down spread eagle now I watch a lot of westerns what does the Indians do to the cowboys <laughs> they tie him to the stake right so I cut up my daughter's jump rope and I tied him to the bed I didn't know what I was going to do at the time, but I knew I was going to do something. And after I tied him, I went in to start fixing dinner, and my two kids wanted to go over to, his, to their auntie's house, which was a few blocks away, and I said yes. So I went in, and that day I was going to fry chicken, mashed potatoes, green beans. That was my dinner. And I was get, getting set to cut this chicken up when he woke up. And he started to scream and holler like a fool, calling me. And I went to the bedroom to see what he wanted. But I had this butcher's knife in my hand. And when he told me to untie him, that one over here said, cut his throat. So I told him, when I finish cut, cutting my chicken, I'm going to cut your throat. So I went back and started cutting up chicken. And he started screaming and hollering. And it was in the summertime, so I had to let all the windows down so the neighbors wouldn't hear him hollering. But I went back and told him, shut up, because when I finish cutting this chicken, I'm going to cut your throat. That was my intent. I didn't care about prison at that time. The drinking and the fighting had gotten worse. The kids are acting out. The job is going crazy. Everything around me is sheer madness. And I knew that. My family didn't understand. Friends don't understand. Nobody understands. You're all alone in this big world. God don't do what you tell him to do. So you're just alone. And then I hear the alcoholics at this phrase, you get sick and tired of being sick and tired. Well, I was just out. I was drained mentally, physically, emotionally, everything. Financially, because he go out and get drunk, I go out and spend money. I was just bankrupt. Totally. 
So I didn't care about going to jail. I didn't think about those kids that are acting out all the time. None of that. But what happened is, when I finished cutting that chicken and went in there to cut his throat, the one daughter that lives in Springfield today came back home to get that same jump rope that I had cut up so they could play rope at Auntie's house. And then I got to her and cut him loose because I don't want her to see him tied like that. He is totally soaking wet. And I remember trying to uncut this rope so that she wouldn't see the state of her father being like that. And then I just kind of went into a like, it's a nerve thing, guys. You go, that's why I understand that damn, damn, damn. You know, when Lois told us sometimes, gosh darn, just don't do it. Well, that day, darn, wouldn't, wouldn't have fixed this. I had to do something. I had to get rid of this man. I quickly uncut him, and he called my mom and a whole nine yards. But what happened is I chose to divorce him. I said, I got to get a divorce. I got to get out of this. And in and, and Mississippi, there's no such thing. You know, you got to be a trailblazer. You'd be first. And I remember leaving him, and I did get, he has divorce papers today. I did get to see a lawyer. Okay? And they, she messed around and told me, in Illinois, women at that time wasn't getting their fair shares. I told you, hold on. Because that double indemnity still worked. Just hold tight. <laughs> but at any rate, I moved away from my house. And with a cousin because he wouldn't leave. It's my house. I ain't going to leave. You know, that kind of attitude. It turned out. I stayed with her for a while, but it was too much of a hassle for me to leave her house. She lived east. I lived west. Take the kids west to school. Come back. Go downtown to work. Get off at 2.30. Go pick up the kids. Bring them back to her house and then have to go back to work. And that little man over here said, don't do that. Go home and make his life miserable. I followed instructions. I went home and I remember running that rope down that side, of that ribbon down the middle of the house and saying, this is your half, this is my half. Don't come on mine and I won't come on yours. He had the bathroom on his side so it didn't last long. <laughs> okay? But he had his phone and I, we're living like strangers. You got your phone, I got mine. I will answer your phone, you don't answer mine. Well, what happened? His phone rang. His phone rang and... It was this man on the phone said, may I speak to Bob? And I said, who's calling? He says, Jim. I said, what do you want? He said, I want to speak to Bob. I said, if you don't tell me what's wrong, you ain't speaking to Bob. And I hung up. And he called right back. May I speak to Bob? And we were playing this game. And who is this? This is Jim. What do you want? I want to speak to Bob. If you don't tell me, you ain't speaking to Bob. And I hung up. Persistent little cuss. We played this game for a while. And I don't know what happened, but... I blinked or I left, whatever. But when I got back in there, he was talking to Jim from Alcoholics Anonymous. And when he got off the phone, he said, uh, Jim, that's, that was Jim from AA. And I'm going to AA. I said, who cares? He said, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to go now. Who cares? So I remember him. He went out that door and he came back and he had this brown envelope with stuff in it and some phone numbers and stuff and he started to tell me about Alcoholics Anonymous and I started telling him to go right there I didn't care I didn't want to hear it but what happened is he started this persistent thing he'd go to work, come home, he'd eat real quick and he'd go out that door I mean this went on for two weeks and at the beginning of the third week some said, oh wait a minute now you know that alcoholic ain't gonna do nothing consistently what's going on? That little, that little guy told me, follow him. And I did. I followed him to um, 
Like we had a hospital. And he parked in the parking lot and he got out and he, some guys were coming. They talking. They walked on in the building. The next night I followed him. I followed him to St. Anne's Hospital. And just as he parked, there was two women that got out of the car. And you, what does two AA people do when they see each other? As soon as they hugged him, I jumped out the car and said, this is why you're going to that AA stuff. <laughs> and one lady was real quiet. She didn't say much. But I don't know, a lot of you may know Big Barbara T. Now that really was a 6'6 woman, I kid you not. And I remember her looking down at me like I was some kind of nut. And I went on to tell him about this AA stuff and what they were doing. And I was all as much as I could be in her face. God takes care of babies and pre-Alanon people. <laughs> because Barbara could have killed me. <laughs> and she didn't. That woman didn't. She just looked at Bob and kind of gave him that smile thinking this woman is a nut. You could see it. But she didn't. And today I love her. And I, when, I t when we talk about this, she was like, I thought she was, she really thought I was crazy. And I was. Going up against this woman. I mean, threatening to kick her. Oh, all of that. <laughs> but then at that Thursday, there was a banquet. And I was invited to this banquet by my husband. And I did the normal. I said, you know, I'm not going around a bunch of drunks. And he said, well, Jen, if you go, I'll buy you a new outfit. And I did the throw in the shoes and I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> and he did. And I went to a hall the colon banquet, much like this one. And I came in, I hear the size of this mouth, right? And I hauled this size. I went down the line. Yep, that's a drunk, his hair ain't clean. Yep, that's a drunk, his shoes ain't shine. Yep, the drunk called she. And he was like, Jim, please, please, please. Right? I got to tell you this before I forget. As luck would have it, none of the ones I picked out were alcoholics. <laughs> but at any rate, the table was here and we were right up front. God puts everybody where they need to be. Watch where God puts you. Because as a result of me coming in that door like that, we were sitting at this table, and there was a lady sitting there. Real soft-spoken lady. I'm going to tell you what I heard, and then I'll tell you what she said. <laughs> she said, baby, I know what you're going through. Uh, there's a place at Loretta Hospital. There's a meeting that I really want you to come to because when you get there, they're going to show you how to beat up, misuse, and abuse an alcoholic. That's what I heard. <laughs> so now I don't know, oh yeah, tell me about this place at Loretta Hospital because I want to go on Wednesday nights. And I gave her my phone number, don't let me forget, I'll be in touch with you, da 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 da. Everything was fine. She kept talking, right? Everything was fine until her husband was one of the speakers on the podium that night. When he walked down there, she said, Oh, Geneva, I want you to meet Al, my beloved alcoholic. I know a lot of bees that go with alcoholics, but beloved ain't one of them. Okay? Now I'm looking at her funny. Um, now, all of a sudden, the earplugs are out. She's telling me about this place, Loretta Hospital on Wednesday nights. Let me tell you something. Anybody out there, if you're not serious about Al-Anon, do not give an Al-Anon member your phone number. 
Now I've skipped, pushed my chair away from this woman. I don't want to hear nothing she got to say now. Because I'm hearing what she was saying. I, I don't know what I, why God let me hear this. What I thought she said versus what she said. But she calls you that Sunday. And she's got this real soft voice. Hey, this is Aileen. Just calling to see how your day was going. Don't forget the meeting Wednesday night. And you say, I'm fine. I'll be there. Bye. <laughs> That's it. She calls you on Monday. Hi, Aileen here. And you're like, who cares? What do you want? Just call in to see how your day's going. The same way it was yesterday. I'm fine. I'll be there. Goodbye. With no intent of going to that meeting. None whatsoever. That Tuesday she called with the same script. That Wednesday she called about 5 o'clock. Hi, it's Aileen. Don't forget the meeting tonight. 7.30. I, I'll be there. And I slammed that phone down with it. And he was sitting at the table. I ain't going nowhere. And he said, well, why don't you try it? I said, why don't you shut up talking to me? Because I'm not going. She called at 7 o'clock and said, hey, listen. Al and I got, got to pass your house. Why don't we just swing by and pick up your house? <laughs> Never mind. I'll drive myself. I'll be there. I knew I had to go to that meeting to make this woman stop calling me. <laughs> Bob was going to that, going to uh, AA meeting there. The kids, they told me, had a meeting, and it was called the bridge. AA went one way, Al-Anon went one way, and Al-Anon went that way. So we get to this meeting. She tells me where the teens are going. Bob went that way, and I go in this meeting. Now I go in this meeting, there's a bunch of you happy people that are smiling. <laughs> and my thought is, what do you have to smile about? If this is truly this meeting for families of alcoholics, why are you happy? You must not be married to an alcoholic. But then they, you know, they come on in and have a seat and, and they want to welcome and, you know, they tell you how you're the most important person in the room and they're going to go around and introduce themselves and have this little mini meeting and then they got this thing where they ask you at the end, you know, just before the meeting is over. You're the most important person in this room. Is there anything you'd like to say? <laughs> you betcha. You see, my very first meeting at Loretta Hospital, the topic for the night was insanity. <laughs> so I very nicely stood up and told them how, yes, they were all insane for being here. How the alcoholic had them brainwashed. And it, I don't do this, and I know I was insane because I did this. Yes, you were insane, but he deserved it. And they let me do that, folks. The people at Loretta Hospital let me say this. And this nice, soft voice told me, well, sweetheart, you keep coming back. <laughs> there was one on this side of me who turns out today to be that same lady that I didn't remember in the parking lot with Big Barbara T. The first night I clowned, and her name was Marlene. And she had these huge eyes. And she looked up at me and she said, you know what, you ain't so tough. And I told her, I said, but you ain't so tough either. She said, and keep coming back. I told her, if you come back, I'll come back. <laughs> well, I came back to the Red Hospital that next week with two things in mind. To show this woman that if she could come back, I could come back. And because the steps were all wrong, I revoked the steps for her. <laughs> so I, I, 
But I remember when I got there and I shared that with them, they laughed and said, okay, Aileen, the baby keep coming back. And this lady told me, since you read them and tried to rewrite them, why don't you work them the way they are and see what happens. So if you can work them, I can work them. <laughs> I don't have long, so I'm going to tell you what. I don't know when the miracle happened. I don't know when I stopped coming to Loretta Hospital for Marlene. But somewhere it happened. It happened because I think it's called service. You catch them before they get too well to say no. <laughs> but when I tell you that my first service job was emptying ashtrays was back then you could smoke in a meeting. Emptying the ashtrays, washing them. I graduated to putting the chairs up after you guys leave. And just leave your chairs all out so you line them up beside the wall. Then I graduated to literature. And that's when these two women that I did dislike so much ended up being my sponsors. Because God put everybody in your life where they need to be. And they told me that if I had to carry that literature around and make sure it was there and on that table on every Wednesday night, then at least I should know what's in it. And they picked pamphlets by which I had to tell them. So therefore I had to read them. And the miracle happened. Don't know when. I can't say like some people, November 15th, I don't know when it happened. But all of a sudden, I wore a plastic smile all my life. I slapped it on when I went out my front door and I took it off when I came in. Well, I no longer needed that plastic smile. Something somewhere had hit. And then I graduated, I became the group representative, the GR for our group. And I didn't get elected. These two people said, when the GR stepped down, you'll do it, and that was it. <laughs> and I did that. And I told them about that boring report that that woman stands up in our group and take up our meeting time trying to give. She told me Al-Anon wasn't dead, so if I had a report, put some life into it. Al-Anon is not dead. And I did that. And you keep it short and to the point. And three years later, I was district representative. After being three years of a GR, somebody out there thought I'd make a good district representative. And I did. I served three years as a DR. Then one day at assembly, somebody said, we need a recording secretary. Are you willing? The hand went up because all I have to do is be willing. And I got elected. I did three years as a recording secretary for the area. And then I came back three years later. Somebody said I'd make a good alternate delegate. I was willing. I was elected. And three years later, Somebody back there thought I'd make a good delegate. And they sent me to the World Service Office's Panel 34 delegate. I came back after being delegate. And it's almost like a ritual, but it's unspoken that three years after being a delegate, I was elected chairman for our area. So you see, I've done my service time. I've done my service time, and I still am active in service. Thanks to Blondel, I'm here today because this is service. This is the only thing I know. If you don't give it away, you lose it. I know you got to go. This spiritual awakening that this theme is about today, it's a beautiful thing. And you don't have to see lightning and thunder to have a spiritual awakening. It can be as simple as, I've asked God for this. And I don't know when he gave it to me, but here it is. That's the spiritual awakening.
I turned this situation over to my higher power. And I don't know when it got fixed. But I went to check it and it was already done. So, I, you know, I didn't, I, you don't have to wait for the lightning and the thunder, you know. Don't wait for it. Look for the little things. Your spiritual awakening. And it all happens because of the 12 steps that you guys didn't let me rewrite. Okay? It all happens because of service when you put you into it. You ask God, God, give me the words. This morning when I said, I don't know how long I'm going to talk. I always, I always talk too long. I don't know how long I'm going to talk, but I, I say what God gives me to say. And I ask him, give me the right words. That's all I need. If you give me the right words, that's it. And today I've been in this program over 20 years, 20, a lot of over 20, but I, life is not always a bed of roses. Somewhere in the old dad book it says, oh Lord, please help me remember that thorn have roses. So, Al-Anon is not going to pave the way and everything's going to go smooth in life for you. It's going to give you the tools to handle the bumps. That's going to be a spiritual awakening. When you don't feed into the madness and you look at yourself and say, oh, a long time ago, I'd be right in the middle of that. That's a spiritual awakening. And I'm going to close. I got this, before I go, I got this last night, I won, I was number six, and then it turned out to be a nine, so everybody at my table, it was unanimous, unanimous, unanimously voted that I should keep it, the, the centerpiece, and as um, one of the ladies at the table started to decorate it, she said, oh, this is your tiara, and the other one said, I look like Mother Nature. <laughs> Mary Paul, could you come up here, please? This is my special delegate I was telling you about. I attended her workshop, and it was the it was called the bundle. And this I give to you for a great workshop for guilt. Thank you guys for having me.